Hey, it's Martine. Today, we are airing the second episode in a two-part series, Marooned in Matamoros. So if you haven't yet heard the first episode, please go back and listen to that. For this story, Post Report's editor and producer Ted Muldoon has been taking the reins as host, so you'll hear him in just a second. And one more thing, a warning that this episode contains some graphic descriptions of a violent crime. So here we go. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Ted Muldoon, in for Martine Powers. For the past year, Post reporter Arlise Hernandez has been documenting the journey of Nancy. She's a Salvadoran woman that arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border in 2019 seeking asylum with her two children. They're among at least 70,000 other asylum seekers forced back into Mexico by the Trump administration while their cases were being processed. This is better known as the Remain in Mexico policy. Last episode, we documented how Nancy and her children became stuck in a migrant camp in Matamoros, Mexico. This episode, what happens when a new administration comes into office promising change? Today is February 10th, 2021. It's been less than a month since President Biden was inaugurated, and it's been 18 months that Nancy has been stuck in the camp. Um, Are you recording? All right. Recording now. Great. So where are you right now? Right now, I am in Brownsville, Texas, on the border. My understanding is that things are changing at the border pretty quickly. What's happening? So late last week and and over the weekend, there were migrant families that were arriving at the border. And contrary to what we had been seeing for more than a year now, were being allowed into the United States. And it came as a surprise because under Title 42, which is this ban, this prohibition on having refugees and asylum seekers and migrants cross into the United States, this was sort of a major change. I was contacted by several migrants with whom I had been in contact with over the last year who told me I needed to come to the camp or at least to a place outside the camp because they were furious. And what was it like when you first showed up? So when I first showed up, it was chaotic. There were dozens of people who were chatting and sort of angrily discussing this latest news, which is, you know, these families that were being allowed into the country, basically doing the thing that they've been wanting to do now for more than a year and a half, almost two years in some cases, and openly wondering, you know, why they were still stuck. This is the first time I had been in the camp in Matamoros since last year. And it was the first time I got to see Nancy in person since that time. And she came out with her arm in a sling, and the sling was made out of a scarf. So, Nancy, me estabas diciendo de que ayer estaba con una desesperación y estás pensando hasta esperarte, ¿no? Sí, es que de ver tanta noticia falsa, tanta esperanza, pues cada semana, cada día nos dicen una cosa... Otra falsa, o sea, ya de mentiras, de que nos den falsas esperanzas, 
y que no nos digan definitivamente, o sea, nosotros acá en el campamento. She, she's frustrated, she's frustrated and, and thinking about, you know, crossing the river with her two children. Pues he decidido esperar esta semana, estos días. Si no pasa nada, tomaré la decisión de tirarme ese río nuevamente, porque mis hijos ya no aguantan, ni yo tampoco. Her daughter is really tired of being in the camp and has even talked about swimming across herself. Cuando dijeron que éramos prioridad, entonces nosotros hacemos el llamado directamente al presidente Biden que qué pasó con la prioridad de nosotros. I think what's really at the root of their frustration, you know, is that they feel like they followed the rules that were laid out for them after Border Patrol apprehended them under the Trump administration. And yet it seems as though other people are reaping the benefits of changing border policy. Do we know if there's actually been a policy change in how they're enforcing Title 42 on the border? It isn't a policy change as much as a response to what the government of Tamaulipas, which is a state in northern Mexico, told the United States, which is that they will no longer take families with small children into their shelters. There's capacity issues. They're still dealing with covid and so these are the families that are being allowed into the country and, and being released to bus stations and airports by the Biden administration. You know, for Nancy and other people stuck in Matamoros, I feel like this for me really underscores just how hard it is to get a handle on policy on the border. I mean, it seems like there's an incredible amount of discretion built into the system. You know, a lot of what happens with immigration policy at the border happens sometimes quickly and unannounced because there's so much discretion built into the system. And so sometimes decisions are left to individual agents on a case-by-case basis, and you don't really understand why some people are allowed into the country or others are not, and it feels very arbitrary for some folks. You know, as of just last week, on February 2nd, President Biden signed an executive order re-evaluating MPP. But from Nancy's perspective, things are just not moving fast enough. So when she hears that other families are getting across the border, she's wondering, why them and not us? Okay. Um, how long has it been since we last spoke? Probably 24 hours. It was just a couple days ago that you got to see Nancy, and you heard about the anger she and other migrants stuck in Matamoros are feeling right now. What have you been up to since? Well, I wanted to see for myself what Nancy and the other migrants were describing. You know, who were these families? Where were they coming from? What was happening when they were encountering Border Patrol and the way to see that is to go to the river. And so I hitched a ride with the Hidalgo County Constable's Office, who helped Border Patrol in apprehending these groups of people who come across the river. And so I was riding along with them, not sure what was going to happen. What were you saying happened last night? Uh, last night we had a, a group of family unit that came across about 82 at one time. And uh, once they were done... Uh, Mexican military showed up on the Mexican side and started chasing the vehicle that was bringing the family units. 
you know, Roque Vela, who's the constable that we were with, had been telling us that there's a specific time at night when they start seeing families come through the border. And, you know, I thought maybe this was just a prediction on his part. But in fact, right on the dot at 9 p.m., a call came over his radio from one of his other deputies that they had intercepted a group of about 20 migrants. And so we rushed over there into a heavily wooded part. It's called the Rincón, or specifically El Rincón del Diablo, which is the devil's corner. <laughs> and it's super narrow roads of caliche, and you can get lost in there pretty easily. And we came upon the scene, and we saw sort of the first group they had put some of these families into the back of their constable trucks to send them over to the the staging area not too far away. And as we were, you know, coming out of Roque's constable vehicle, another group of 30 showed up, just came out of the darkness and approached the, you know, the headlight, the piercing headlights of the law enforcement vehicles. Even as they started sort of taking names and, and talking to the people, making sure that everyone was okay, a third group of people showed up for a total of about 60 to 80 families, mostly parents with small children, but also some teenagers. It wasn't clear to me there would be, there were any single adults. They looked like any, you know, regular person with hoodies, jeans, shoes. One family there, it looked like a one-year-old had lost her shoes. So she only, all she had were socks on and book bags carrying the, the few possessions that they had. And while you're talking to these people, what did they sound like? I mean, were they tired? Were they hopeful? Oh, they were exhausted. They were exhausted. They were afraid. They didn't know, you know, what would happen next. There was one moment that I happened to capture where a mother of a young child directed a question to Constable Vela and said, do you think they're going to help us now? And Constable Vela is there just in a, you know, assisting capacity, right? He, he's not involved in any of the adjudication or other issues that come up in this case. And he said, You know, I can't answer that question. I wish I could, but I can't. When you first texted me about this, you said you were feeling kind of shaken. Yeah, you know, I've been following Nancy for the last year, but I'd only met her after she had gone through these traumatic experiences of fleeing, of crossing the river, of being kidnapped. And it was in this experience with the constable's office that I really got to see for the first time, you know, people actively in the throes of the experience that I had only had expressed to me in words, not in real life. It felt more real. I think it was jarring for me. It was just like one group after the another, and they were and they were so small. The children were were so small, and and the other thing that happened was among the group there was a woman who was seven and a half months pregnant, yeah. and at one point she grabbed my arm, was like "Senorita," and you know how how can I help you? And she I had already introduced myself to the group as a reporter. She told me that she was in serious pain 
and she opened her jacket and then I saw her belly. Mm -hmm. So I ran over to Roque, the constable, and said, hey, we've got a seven and a half month pregnant woman who's in real pain and I don't know what to do about that. And he told me to put her in his truck. And, you know, I sat in the back of his truck with her all the way to the Border Patrol station. We got lost and the road is really tough. So like it was bouncing and every time that we hit like a divot or anything in the road, she'd she'd yelp and and she was whimpering the whole time. And I didn't know how to how to help her if if I could even. And and then once we got to the staging area under the Anzaldúas Bridge, basically Border Patrol took over and was asking her a bunch of questions. I was afraid that her her water was going to break in the seat next to me and that we would mm-hmm. be placed in a totally different situation. Um, but I think it was knowing that she was in so much pain and not knowing how or if I could be of any help and, you know, trying to get her to to breathe and give her water. I've never, I've not been in that situation before. And that sort of just compounded the, yeah. the shock for me. And, you know, and the sad part is I might never find out what happened to her. So I think last time we spoke was about a week ago. What's been happening since then down on the border? So when President Biden came into office, he promised to institute a humane and orderly process for bringing in folks enrolled in the MPP program into the United States. Today, I woke up to a voice memo on my phone super early, pretty unusual for Nancy. Hola, Nelly. Buenos días. ¿Cómo está? Bueno, yo aquí... Pues contenta, nerviosa, estoy de todo, Arely, porque ya empezaron, ya empezaron a pasar el primer grupo en la mañana. She was elated to tell me that they got the news that, you know, folks would be able to start crossing into the United States. I mean, her, it's such a change in her voice, in, in the timbre and tenor of her voice from just a couple weeks earlier when she wasn't sure how much longer she was going to hold on. And now it just feels like she's a different person. But, you know, primero Dios, as she says, you know, God permitting or Lord permitting, she will cross into the United States today. So as soon as I got a message, I jumped out of bed and into my car and started driving south from San Antonio to the border to watch her cross. Unfortunately, I did not make it on time. But throughout the day, we were sending each other messages and exchanging phone calls because I wanted to keep tabs on where it is she was going and what she was experiencing, what she was feeling. So this is the process that Nancy went through. As soon as she got notification, she went to a tent run by the aid agencies, the UN was involved, registered, got all her information checked. Then she went to go get her COVID test. She tested negative along with Andrea and David. And the next step for her was to basically board buses to head across the International Bridge. As she's sitting on this bus about to cross this international bridge that she knows all too well, it's a bridge that she's 
walked on and ascended and descended several times in disappointment. And here she was, sitting on this bus for what she hoped would be the last time. She was extremely nervous, didn't know what to expect. She had waited so long for this particular moment that it hardly felt real. After being stuck in the camp for 18 months, Nancy was finally able to cross the bridge from Matamoros to Brownsville on Saturday, February 27th. I didn't see this happen for Nancy, but I did see it happen for lots of other migrants. The moment they stepped off that bus at the Brownsville bus terminal, the place just erupted in applause. And these folks were, these were from lawyers, from aid workers. These are the people who had walked through this experience with them for the last two years. You could see on the faces of these migrants just the elation and the relief of finally having been able to cross into the United States and being welcomed by so many people. So after uh, Nancy was placed on the bus, she was taken to an overflow shelter first and where she filled out more paperwork, then went to another shelter to get supplies and oriented and finally ended up in a hotel that night that was paid for by a woman who was collecting donations for migrants. That's where I met Nancy the next morning. And the first thing she said to me was how amazing it was to sleep in a bed for the first time in a year and a half. Dormí bien, mis hijos durmieron felices. Bueno, como ve, mi hijo ni se quiere levantar porque está feliz. Her youngest son, David, was still wrapped up in the comforter and unwilling to come out of the bed. Yeah. What were the other reactions from their, her two children? Well, so the whole time that I have known Nancy and visited her in the migrant camp, I had never seen her children smile. I could feel the anxiety coming off of them. There were two children who were supremely stressed out all the time. And when I saw them on the other side, I almost didn't recognize them because they were both beaming, you know, ear to ear. It's almost as if, you know, this this weight had been lifted off their shoulders <laughs> They just felt, it seemed like they felt free. And, and I asked Andrea about that later. And she's like, yeah, it's, I just feel like I'm free now. And what about Nancy? What were the conversations like you had with her? Well, Nancy was extremely happy and reflective of uh, what her experience had been. Y le dije, señor, esta es la última vez que yo cruzo este puente y regreso para México. Porque la próxima vez que yo cruzo este puente no voy a volver para México. I think she's in a process, you know. There are a lot of things she's angry about. The whole reason why she's in this situation in the first place is because of the instability in her home country. Remember, her husband was murdered in 2010. You can tell that there's a part of that that she still holds on to. And it took her a long time to talk to me about what happened to her husband. From the moment... 
Nancy had entered the United States, I had noticed that she had this teal book bag. That book bag never left her side. Whenever we left the car or, you know, she was moving from a hotel to another place to sleep, she carried this book bag very close to her. And I remember asking her, you know, what was so important that was inside? And it was full of papers that she kept protected in the Ziploc bag. Papers documenting the experiences that she had had in El Salvador and what had brought her to the United States in the first place. These are papers she's going to use to try to plead her case for asylum. And I, I've taken a look at some of these papers and managed to review and, and verify them. They included this one piece of paper that she showed me, which was a printout of a scanned newspaper article about her husband's death. And just a warning, this is pretty graphic. But the photo in the article showed an officer holding a white sheet over her husband's body. And when she showed that to me, she told me the story of how that sheet was one that she had pulled out of her home and ran to the scene to put it over her husband. And that after they took his body... She felt the need to use that same blanket to pick up the pieces of his brain that had been splattered all over the street oh my God. and carry it you know, behind to, to the funeral home. I, I guess in her mind, she was just thinking that they needed it to, to finish the embalming or to clean him up. And, you know, it was that moment that I realized that there was so much that Nancy had held back for good reason, but that now that she was feeling safe and was in the United States, was starting to unveil to me and to share with me in in, in some graphic details in some cases. And, and again, it was like getting more puzzle pieces to put together a portrait of who Nancy was. The other thing that struck me about that day is that, as I mentioned, this woman who had been buying the clothes and, and treating them to dinner with donations that she had collected was staying at an apartment complex, like it's right on the river across the camp. And there was at one point, they were out on the the terrace, like the balcony, and you could peer, it's right there, the river, <laughs> that green colored river, you see it right there. And they looked across, they weren't sure at first, but the three of them looked across and, re- and saw sort of the tops of these white tents and realized that that was the intake station where MPP folks were registering to be able to cross in the United States. So that meant that the camp was right there, that they could see it. And it was a moment when the three of them just just went silent. Looking out across the river and seeing where they had celebrated Christmas and birthdays, where they were fearful for their lives for as long as they were, they were so close. And <laughs> so far from getting to where they wanted to be. So 
So as of today, and we are speaking the afternoon of Tuesday, March the 2nd, 2021, Nancy is now finally reunited with her late husband's family in Los Angeles. That's correct. She took a a flight early on uh, March 2nd, 7 a.m. with a layover in Houston and a 10 a.m. flight to California. So right about this time, she should be in Los Angeles and being reunited with her brother-in-law and her children's grandmother, who, who have been a huge support for them throughout this entire process. Okay, let's turn this bad boy off. So today is April 2nd, or at least it has been a month since Nancy crossed into the United States, and we got that voice memo from her inviting us to come visit her and her family. And here we are. Um, Where are we? We are in Los Angeles, California, outside the home uh, that Nancy shares with her children and and relatives who are the, the family of Nancy's husband, deceased husband, that have been helping them this whole time. And what's happening today? Today, uh, Nancy is celebrating the 19th birthday of her daughter, and this will be the first birthday that they celebrate while not migrating and not in a migrant camp. Hola! (laughs) Nancy's family's home is sort of a, a brick and cement rambler. When you first walk into Nancy's house, you're sort of going down this this long hallway that opens up into like the living room slash dining room. It's definitely the place where the family of 12 gets together and gathers as, as one family. To the right is the tiny kitchen for the amount of people who live there. And then if you keep walking, you'll walk straight through to the backyard. Where children were just jumping on this trampoline going nuts. We're, yeah, where children were jumping on a trampoline and, and where the ladies were grilling fish for the party. Mi nombre es Reina. Estoy haciendo casamiento salvadoreño. ¿Qué es casamiento? Es frijolitos. Y después de estos frijolitos, después que los sufría bien fritito, les echo arroz. Ay, sí. Pero para 
So, so what we're talking about, this is Grandma. She's over a steaming pot of rice and beans that she's cooking. Nancy's behind her. It looks like she's making the, the sauce for the fish. There's fish chicken and beef that they're preparing. They're so excited about this. They're pulling out the red carpet here uh, for Andrea and this party. So, And they're expecting their, uh, at least 12 people from the family to, to be here. Marina, she felt incomplete over, you know, the course of two years when she thought that the family that she had sent for to bring into the United States got stuck at the at the border. She's talking about how much she suffered knowing and thinking and, you know, fearing that they would die uh, in that camp and that they would die before she would get to see her grandchildren and Nancy again, who she, she describes as less of a daughter-in-law and more as, a, as an actual daughter for all the time that they've spent together. Say <laughs> next year they'll be mariachi. <laughs> She <laughs> says that, you know, part of the reason why they're making such a big deal of, of this birthday party is because, so, you know, so it's a celebration of Andrea's life, but it's also a celebration of the fact that they're finally together, right, as a family. It's been a long journey for Nancy's family here in the United States. Her father-in-law was the first one to enter the country many, many, many years before she did. And then he brought his son, Edwin. Soy Edwin. Soy cuñado de Nancy. Um, tío de Andrea y tío de David. Y Edwin, ¿cómo ha sido eso de tener a Andrea y David aquí? Oh, muy, uh, muy emocionante. <laughs> you know, it's uh, sentimientos encontrados. O sea, porque uh, por un lado decir, hermano, que están tus hijos y... Quédate tranquilo, o sea, de aquí nosotros lo seguimos protegiendo. O sea, esa siempre nosotros somos éramos tres y siempre estuvimos muy muy unidos y, y siempre nos hicimos una promesa de que si faltaba uno, o sea, los otros nos íbamos a encargar de, de los hijos, que es um, For Edwin in some ways this is a fulfillment of a promise that he made to his brother, um, you know, and it's stepping in and saying, you know, I've got this, bro. I, you know, I'm taking care of your family now. Uh, and that there was three brothers, son tres hermanos. Um, and we always had sort of this pact that if one of us were not there, that we would take care of the other's family. And this is, it's finally, at some point, this is me um, fulfilling my promise to my brother. So, por eso, um, si, si tú te sientas a pensar y dices y miras a Andrea miras a David y dices qué tanta emoción sientes that for him looking at Andrea and looking at, at David help, you know it's remembering his brother and mm, nuevas oportunidades new opportunities ah uh, y le digo a ellos tenemos que que trabajar duro para seguir siendo 
parte para ser grande este país. Por eso uh, amo este país. That's why I love this country. ¿Quién eres? David. David, ¿cómo se siente ahora estando aquí en Los Ángeles? Me siento feliz. Allá sufría mucho, pero ahora ya todo cambió. Tenemos, vamos, vamos empezando una nueva vida, gracias a Dios que salimos del campamento. Y gracias a mi madre porque tan We are talking to David, David, and he's just telling us that uh, you know, life is is so much better. Life is so much better. You know, it was they suffered a lot in the camp and He's thankful to his mother who held on for as long as she did. And, you know, now that they're here, we're going to work hard for her. Para la gente que no entienden lo que era vivir en ese campamento, ¿cómo usted se lo explicaría a otros que no entienden? No pudiera porque no quiero volver a recordar ese sufrimiento que tenía en el campamento. Y no se lo decía a otras personas. Lo que yo sufrí con mi familia. Um, I asked him for those people who don't understand what it was like to live in that camp, how he would describe it to other people. He's like, I don't want to remember. I don't want to remember what it was like to suffer in that camp, and we suffered quite a bit. Something important that uh, her cousin just said is that now she has to do a waltz that's, that are like, you know, sort of a, a special dance, which is actually a significant part of the quinceañera. And essentially they're recreating that because they weren't there for her quinceañera. And this is the typical song that is played at a quinceañera for that dance. Mi nombre es Andrea. ¿Cómo, cuán distinto fue el cumpleaños de este año comparado con la de ayer? No, fue mucho año? distinto. ¿En qué sentido? Pues en las condiciones que estábamos y con personas que no conocíamos, ya con la familia aquí fue diferente. Fue so, mejor este cumpleaños que el pasado. It was totally different. You know, last year we were among people that we didn't know, strangers, and... Um, You know, now we're among family. It's totally different. Ustedes están al principio de, de, de otro capítulo de su vida, eh, en lo que es el proceso legal en cuanto al estilo. So I asked her, you know, has it, uh, you know, she's beginning the, uh, a new process, right? This asylum process. And there's a possibility because it's not predictable in a U.S. immigration system what, that they don't win asylum in this case or the judge doesn't grant asylum and that they're ordered back to... El Salvador. No, sí. 
¿Te duele pensarlo? Pues no, se me pasa en la cabeza y no. That's not even something that Andrea's allowing into her her consciousness at the moment. Uh, she hasn't even thought about it because no quieres pensarlo, no? She hasn't thought about it because she doesn't want to think about it. You know, Arlis, we've left this story in a really happy place of, you know, their family being reunited, being back together. But as you well know, as somebody that's covered this so much, somebody like Nancy has a very low chance of being granted asylum in the United States ultimately. And so, I mean, there's a high likelihood that she will not be allowed to stay. It makes me worried for her that she will be placed back in a situation that will be untenable, that could result in the loss of her and her children's lives. I just, you know, it just throws everything back into that uncertainty that was palpable at the migrant camp, right? And and to see Andrea and David in California so filled with hope and so determined not to look backwards, and then to hear that they could be return to the situation that they fled initially would break them, I think. Yeah. And what do we know about where their case currently stands? Well, the promise of the Biden administration was that these cases would be transferred to the locations where the families end up, right? So Nancy will presumably face an immigration court judge in California And her first hearing has already been set for October 2022. Wow. That's, again, like over a year from now when we're recording this. Right, right. Over a year in which she'll get accustomed to life in the United States, where she'll get a job in the United States, where her children will start attending school and speaking English. Like, you know. And it's a year that's obviously so much better than the prior year being stuck in this camp. But... I mean, it must be a familiar position for Nancy. Again, they're kind of, they're stuck in limbo. Right. They're in a safer place. They're amongst people who love them. But the same question mark is is sort of looming over their future. So yes, there's comfort. Yes, there's safety. But the uncertainty and not knowing how these things are going to play out or whether the system as it works right now is going to give her an opportunity to present her case is shrouded in in a big question mark. There was this moment that we recorded when we were talking with Edwin. You ask him. Well, Nancy's here. Yeah. Nancy's here now. I hear the question mark. Nancy's here now, question mark.
On June 1, 2021, the Biden administration formally terminated the MPP program. This decision has not affected Nancy's case, or those of tens of thousands of other asylum seekers like her. Nancy is still awaiting her court date in October of next year. To find photos and videos of Nancy's journey from El Salvador and life in the camp, go to wapo.st nancy. This story was reported by Arlis Hernandez. Additional reporting, production, and sound design by me, Ted Muldoon. Translation and production assistance by Cecilia Favela. This series was edited by Robin Amer. Additional editing by Anne Gerhardt, Maggie Penman, Emily Kodik, Jenna Johnson, Victoria Benning, and Courtney Kahn. Fact-checking by Cecilia Favela and Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and me, Ted Muldoon. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Rennie Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Our intern is Corey Suzuki. Martine Powers will be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.